We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dinah Weeks and Dave Woodard. Day number four of Thanksgiving leftovers. You no. may want to consider making soup no. or throwing the rest out. Botulism yeah. sucks. Here's Scott Thompson. Yeah. Segarini lives. Who? Who? Uh, good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Hamilton today. The gang's all here. Now I'm in a good mood. All right. Uh, another busy day uh, in the hammer and uh, everywhere. The uh, Emergency Act inquiry uh, is uh, in its second day now. Going to go on for six weeks. It's going to take a while. So uh, those in front, you might want to sit down. <laughs> you might want to sit down. It's going to be a long show. Uh, so uh, fascinating. We're basically hearing now from residents and such who uh, obviously are telling about how extremely difficult it was to be uh, living in Ottawa during that three-week period and uh, what all of the residents uh, you know, had to go through and, and what the experience was like for them. And then it will move on to various other officials and such, including uh, it looks like the Prime Minister. And uh, I've got an interesting interview coming up a little later on with John Iveson of the National Post. Uh, and, and mentioning a very specific point, and that is there is an extre- extremely high bar to meet to prove that national security was at threat, uh, was a threat, um, and, and that is what is needed to justify the Emergencies Act. And as you see it now, uh, and even the OPP lawyer said this today, that it was not needed and that they had the tools. It was poor leadership or everything else uh, that allowed this to happen. And, you know, again, as uh, as I've said earlier, I hope a much, you know, by the time you get to three weeks and there's riots going on and protests going on, yeah, something's got to be done. Um, but how did it get to that point? You know, it seemed that uh, the prime minister provoked all of this. Uh, 90% of us are vaccinated, so he picks a fight with the last 10%, whether it's truckers or everybody else. Uh, in society, uh, called them racist and misogynistic. And then uh, when they called his bluff and showed up for a fight, he ran away. And we didn't hear from him from the first few days of all of this. And that's when this should have been dealt with. Not three weeks in, uh, and you call in the army and, and you know, to, to save the world. Uh, come on, uh, you poke the bear and then you run away. That's That's what happened here. Will we find that out? Um, not sure, but certainly a very high bar to, to prove. Let's listen to this report from Global News' Abigail Beeman. While inquiries seek to uncover the truth, they are not trials. The lead commissioner sets the stage for the inquiry into the government's decision to invoke the Emergencies Act as the convoy protest gripped Ottawa's downtown core this winter. There's a list of 60-plus witnesses and thousands of pages of documents. The public's legitimate right to know why the government proclaimed an emergency and whether the actions it took were appropriate. The first day, a scene setter hearing from various lawyers for different groups with very different viewpoints. There was no justification whatsoever to invoke the Emergencies Act. For those three weeks of harassment, street blockages, 
ear splitting air and train horns and general lawlessness was unprecedented. The people in Ottawa are still traumatized. From Ottawa residents to protesters to politics, two provinces made their frustrations clear. None of the powers that were created under the Federal Emergencies Act were necessary, nor were any of them used in Alberta to resolve the Coots blockade. The federal government had already determined that a nationwide emergency would be declared before the first minister's call. The call was not so much about consulting as it was about telling. Big name witnesses will appear later, including protest organizer Tamara Leach, who faces a criminal trial later this year. I'm looking forward to testifying and I'm happy to be here. Were Ottawa residents inconvenienced? They certainly were, but that needs to be compared and, and, and put side by side with the impact that these mandates had on millions of Canadians. And the Prime Minister, who says he's happy to testify. The important thing is for Canadians to understand uh, the, the situation we were in and the choices we make. We didn't enter uh, into using the Emergencies Act lightly. The inquiry will last six weeks on a tight timeline. The lead commissioner says time is its biggest challenge. They must table their final report with recommendations February 20th. Abigail Beeman, Global News, Ottawa. Uh, you know, uh, of course it was hell. That, that's how we got to the Emergencies Act. Of course, we know about the lawlessness. That's how we got to the Emergencies Act. What about the lack of leadership that got us there? What about the police chief? The round shoulders that he possessed? The mayor? The prime minister poking the bear and running? And should the prime minister be commenting while an inquiry is going on? Because normally when you ask politicians about something that's involving an inquiry, they don't want to talk about it. So I think this is going to be fascinating, and I think it's already been proven that the legal threshold for calling the Emergency Act has most likely not been met. Even the OPP stated that. However, uh, do you need somebody to come in and clean up this mess after three weeks of hell? Of course you do. But that's not the same thing. And uh, it'll be fascinating to see how the court of public opinion digests all of this uh, after six weeks. All right, getting into the heated uh, last uh, few days of a municipal election. We head to the polls next week. Uh, yesterday had mayoral candidate Bob Bertina on. Today it's Andrea Horvath, mayoral candidate, former leader of the Ontario NDP, and is with us now. Andrea, thank you for your time. I hope you're doing well. Always my pleasure, Scott. Thanks for the invitation, and I'm doing great. Uh, so we had uh, Bob Bertina on yesterday, and, and I asked a basic uh, question. What are you hearing at the doors? We're going to play his answer, and I want to get your reaction to that, if that's okay. Uh, sure. Here's here's the question I asked about the issues hearing at the door from yesterday. What are you hearing at the doors, Bob? What are you hearing from the people who uh, are speaking to you and are complaining or have concerns? What are the issues? Well, I I hate to say this, uh, and I, I don't mean to be mean at all, but there are a lot of people who don't want to have uh, Andrea Horvath as mayor. And obviously, there are lots of people who don't want to have me as mayor. Uh, and so that's what you, but you've asked me the question, and I, I hear that over and over again. Uh, and the only other reference is to the other guy. So uh, it it's kind of a, uh, and I hate to put it this way, Scott, but like anybody but Andrea, and I don't know who the other guy is. All right, Andrea, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> well, first and foremost, um, 
I, you know, those guys can run their campaigns the way that they want. They're going to, you know, they're going to, you know, take a low road. I, I, that's not my business. What I, what I know is that I believe Hamilton's uh, best days are ahead. I'm running a positive campaign because I believe there are great things in the future for this city. And, uh, and I'm hearing and picking up a lot of excitement on the doorsteps myself. And, and so I'm just going to continue to work these next uh, nine or 10 days or so to, uh, in fact, 10 days from today is election day, mm-hmm. uh, to just uh, continue to, to talk to folks. But, but seriously, though, what I do hear, uh, Scott, on the doors myself is housing. And that's that's the case. No matter if I'm in Stony Creek, if I'm in Ancaster, if I'm downtown, uh, if I'm in Flamborough, people are really worried about the housing crisis from one end of the spectrum to the other. You know, from the folks who are unhoused and very vulnerable, and you know, bumping up against winter on some of our streets. Uh, the the people who are vulnerable that are on, on street corners where people never used to be before, uh, who are uh, you know asking for money, for example, all the way to uh, you know, families. I was just talking to a couple last night in Stony Creek who said they're really worried that their young adult adult children are never going to be able to own a, own a home and their kids are feeling not very positive about that. So for me, uh, I don't know who Mr. Medina is talking to. Uh, I'm hearing housing really on all levels. I'm hearing housing and, and in all parts of the state. And I, and I think I talked to you uh, to you about this before at the provincial level, Andrea, and I found it fascinating with the last provincial election that all four parties, political parties, main political parties, were talking about building more homes. So at the city level, what can be done? You've seen it from the provincial standpoint. What can be done at the city level to help this out, to speed up the process? There are lots of opportunities, and I've been getting a lot of ideas from the from the not-for-profit sector of housing providers from the private sector of housing de- uh, providers uh, there's there are a number of of things, of processes, of backlogs that are happening at City Hall. And, and you know what? They're happening everywhere. They're happening in most in every municipality. Uh, but uh, but here in Hamilton, we really do need to get some some housing built. We need to increase the supply so that the cost uh, is, is reduced. Of course, we're seeing a softening in the market now. Uh, but with more supply, we'll see uh, that uh, those prices come down even more. We need affordable rental housing, which we don't have. Uh, so it, it's about getting rid of the backlogs. It's It's about making sure that the city is partnering with the not-for-profit sector. There are some 3,000 units uh, that the collective of uh, not-for-profit providers have literally ready to go, but they need the city's support to be able to unlock funding from the feds and the province. Uh, We should be unlocking that funding with them. It's going to take all of us to be at the table. I don't for a minute believe that the municipality should be out of the housing uh, sector. I think that would be a huge mistake. Uh, I believe we all need to be at the table, not-for-profit, private developers, as well as government, uh, because this crisis needs all of us uh, to, um, to, to find the solutions that work, as well as the city staff uh, and, and the uh, upper levels of administration. We, we have to make it easier, uh, make it uh, more streamlined uh, and, and get that housing built. Obviously, high demand, low supply. It seems whenever we have this this discussion, Andrea, it's the people who want to fill in, you know, don't expand the urban boundary, do it all with the city infill, as opposed to uh, those against urban sprawl. Like, why is this always fought on the extreme? Is it not a combination of the two? 
Well, I think that there's one of the reasons that there's a lot more pressure to expand the urban boundary. And I, I don't want to talk about the provincial policy change that happened mm -hmm. because really people don't have that, you know, that they, the people don't want that kind of detail. But what I what I can tell you is that if we continue to to backlog these um, projects, if we continue to drag our feet and not solve uh, the um, hurdles that uh, that developers in the not for profit and uh, for profit sector are are facing, it puts more and more pressure on the urban boundary uh, to be expanded. And so if, if we're serious about keeping a firm urban, urban boundary, then we have to solve these problems. Uh, and I've used this language with those very people, uh, and they all agree that that we, we need to get the, this, uh, uh, this uh, juggernaut dealt with uh, and that will take the pressure off uh, the urban boundary expansion and so so let's do that if people and i'm one of those people that firmly uh, and i haven't ever waffled and i haven't ever changed my position i believe that that we do have a lot of opportunity uh to build within this existing urban boundary but let's make it happen let's make that happen and i believe that we absolutely can do that you know we we also know that there's a, a higher order of transportation the, the the corridor that's going through the downtown Town, we see the cranes already. We see mm. the buildings that are already people have already moved into along that corridor. That investment came. That higher density investment came uh, because of uh, of the LRT uh, being on its way. And so I, I think we have to be thoughtful about that as well and realize that along that kind of corridor, uh, we're going to be able to increase the densities uh, a lot more, for example, than in, in other communities mm. where more gentle density uh, is what's what uh, is what's prescribed there's a missing middle of housing remember we used to talk back in the day about a starter home we don't even <laughs> use that language yeah. anymore because nobody's saying, nobody's ready to get into the nobody's able to get into the market those young people are just not able to so we need the duplexes we need the semis we need the townhouses uh, you know we need uh, those kinds of solutions uh, to help people get their foot in the door because those kinds of units are not as expensive as a you know as a single family home which you know we do have room for some of those as well uh, in our existing urban boundary so you know, it is solvable. It, it hasn't been um, addressed in, in many years now. I keep asking the question, how long has it been this bad? Uh, yeah. And I get the answer at least half a dozen years. It's It's been really difficult. Andrea Horvath with us, mayoral candidate, former leader of the Ontario NDP, talking about housing. Andrea, we'll have you back again next week. Thanks so much. Good luck. Thank you, Scott. Take care. Ned, how are you? Hey, good, buddy. Just, What's uh, on your mind? Uh, Andrea Horvath comments. Uh, Scotty, any time the government gets involved in anything, you know the costs go way out of bounds. And even worse is the cost of maintaining government housing. There's a reason why private uh, developers and individuals and even individual families aren't getting into developing rental property. It's because of what the government did with legislation, with rules, restrictions, with liabilities, and so on and so on. Now, the government gets involved. The cost of building a unit are absolutely phenomenal. So they'll get private developers to do it, but then the government runs it. And it costs more to run each unit per month than it does any rent anywhere in the city. So it's a problem not just Hamilton has, but everybody has it because the government thinks they should run everything. And that's the problem. If, I understand if, what you're saying. I'm old enough to remember rent control. And I mean, back in the 70s, there, you know, there was lots of apartment buildings. There hasn't been an apartment building built since then. It's all condos now because absolutely. rent control came in. And, and if the developers can't afford to make a profit on their buildings, then and how are they going? Why would they? They yeah, would be crazy. Yeah. Now, even that, further, yeah. 
Doug Ford, who's even a conservative, in 2020 and 21, the increase for those two years, one year it was zero, the other year is 1.2. This year it's 2.5. The inflation rate is between 8 and who knows what, 20, depending on what statistics, and yet the rent increase is 2.5%. Why would anybody in their right mind build a rental property, uh, with the exception of those guys who do it on television, who are backed by Home Depot and Lowe's and everything else, I get it. And they build, they build an apartment in half an hour, and they have no idea what happens when a cat or a dog or a smoker or something else gets in there. So the bottom line is when these left-wing people start talking about government building housing, who do you know that wants to live in government housing? Even the people who score and get in there, they want out eventually. you got to get people, especially kids, they should be part of the normal community like everybody else. So the government get out of the way. Make it affordable, make it profitable, and make it so the developers and everybody with dreams and desires want to do this. Just imagine if governments ran grocery stores, like they run (laughs) everything else. It's so insane, and these socialists, these left-wingers just don't get it, yet they will never be caught dead in one of those housing projects or anything else. I don't care how new they are. Cumberland and Gage Park have some beautiful buildings that were built not too long ago. Sanford and Maine has them. And it's the same thing. Sanford and King rather has them. Nobody, but nobody wants them in their area. Nobody want. And on top of it all, you're ghettoizing the children. You're ghettoizing everybody, even though they're brand new buildings. Government, get out of the way. Socialists, quit your start. Uh, provide a facility. Provide the environment so that people can build it on their own, do it on their own, and the need will be fulfilled. But like you said, rent control, stifling rent increases, legislation to the gazoos, liabilities and enforcement against landlords they got goosebumps on their ass whenever they talk about this right on brother thanks <laughs> all right there you have it ned for mayor you're listening to the hamilton today podcast from 900 chml all right let's move on uh queen has released a rediscovered song featuring freddie mercury you heard it on the way in it's called face it alone uh eric elper with us publicist music commentator eric as always thanks for the time hope you're well i'm good how do i follow that phone call I know, exactly. So this reminds me, this Queen release of the Beatles finding Free as a Bird, and everybody went, oh yeah, that's why it was left off an album in the first place. Uh, is that the same thing here with Queen, or is it just because, you know, these artists have passed on, no matter what they have, it's of value? Yeah, I think it's the more the latter, you know, especially finding things in the vault or in somebody's attic. Um, the fact that Freddie Mercury is so recognizable in this song um, and, you know, with Face Alone being left off of their 13th album called The Miracle, that came out a couple of years after Freddie Mercury passed away. Um, and it's part of an eight CD collector box set that has six unpublished songs as long uh, 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 as well as dialogue between members of the band. So part of this is there's a brand new box set. They have to add some, you know, some herbs and spices and fun things to Mm -hmm. the box set. Um, But it's also that, you know, you and I have talked about this in the past. Look at how many millions of dollars that Fleetwood Mac and Neil Young, Shakira, John Lennon and Dire Straits have sold their catalog and their publishing rights for. Queen has not. So every time that they decide to put something out there that is previously unreleased it adds another maybe couple of million dollars to that pot whenever that whenever that band decides to sell 
You know, you bring up a very valid point, Eric, um, especially if you can provide new product to add to that. That keeps it going. So in that respect, is Queen best to hold out before that big uh, deal to sell it all? Um, yes, but that window is closing very, very soon. In fact, the reason why we're seeing a lot of these deals happen in the music industry is primarily because there's a tax window in the United States that is closing very, very fast. And it turns out that, um, with the capital gain tax is going to be falling in line with income tax, which means that when you're Neil Young and you sell your catalog for $150 million, it's at a low tax rate right now of of about 20%. Once that loophole closes it's going to be about 37 percent. so these artists are trying to get in under the wire before they have to start making a lot of more money to the government but you know you you and i have talked about the beatles in the past our queen right now do you think the biggest band on the planet for a band that hasn't even been around for 30 years Hmm. that's a valid point yeah Uh, yeah, if you go to their website they have so (laughs) much news yeah sorry Go ahead. Go ahead. No, but, you know, I mean, even to, uh, you know, Brian May keeping it alive and and, yeah. and and regurgitating this stuff. Would every single band, would they not have material like this that didn't make the album? I mean, is this the only thing left? Well, you know, in the 1960s and 70s, when they were recording these songs, chances are they were just thinking one thing, get out the album and anything else was just crap, went into the garbage. You know, it wasn't like that they were working on fancy computers like we have now where they can just keep things in a file forever, um, every single demo. In the 60s and 70s, it's like film footage. It was pretty rare for any kind of leftovers to have. Probably since the 90s and 2000s when box sets started to become really popular and the Beatles help kind of build that road with the anthology albums and the book. All of these artists were like, we should go and look to see what we have as a, you know, song that never made the cut. Unfortunately, there weren't a lot available um, until, you know, in the last 20, 25 years. So, you know, yeah, it's scraping a little bit of the bottom of the barrel. But when you're a fan of Queen and they just keep generating new fans every single month. Look, this month alone, they're releasing the Miracle album collector's edition. They have a new single out. They are doing worldwide billboards. They have new tour dates with Adam Lambert as the lead vocalist. Um, mm-hmm. They have an outsider tour from uh, from Roger, the drummer of the band. He is out on tour now. Um, they have signed guest lists available. They performed at the Taylor Hawkins tribute concert. Um, so there's stuff going on with this band that would really embarrass some of these teenage pop stars who complain sometimes about being overworked. This band is still running on all four cylinders. It's astonishing. Eric Alper with us, music publicist, uh, music publicist and commentator. Queen, still alive and going strong. New single, Face It Alone, and a box set on the way. Eric, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great weekend. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
All right, um, we've talked about this situation a couple of weeks ago, and um, uh, it came up again today at our house uh, because um, my son knows somebody who uh, attends Oakville Trafalgar High School. And uh, this presented itself actually after the first day of school. My son started showing me pictures that he had received from uh, from friends that he knows that go to the school, and uh, I didn't believe him. And we actually got into a bit of a fight about it. And uh, I said, uh, you know, anyway, uh, after about three weeks, uh, slowly the story came to the surface and the mainstream media jumped on board. Uh, and and what we are talking about is a teacher that is uh, apparently transitioning from female or sorry, from male to female and is at the school uh, in, in very, very, very tight fitting clothing dressed as a woman with extreme prosthetic breasts on, extremely large prosthetic breasts, nipples pointing out, and a very, 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 very tight skirt. Um, to me, this is not about somebody who's going through a transition. I can only imagine what that challenge must be like for any individual, and I do not mean to make light of that in any way. To me, this is an issue about what is appropriate dress in a school, no matter what your gender is. Uh, so, uh, it was in the, uh, sun today because, uh, more information on this going to, uh, is going to be, or this is now before the Ontario College of Teachers to decide what is going on. We put a call into Education Minister Stephen Lecce's office, not available today, uh, but is following the story and will comment it on it, uh, eventually. So, uh, I'm thinking, how do we talk about this? And the name Larry Deany came up because before mayor of the city of Hamilton, he was a school principal. I wanted to get his take on how he would view this sort of situation uh, moving forward. We had Howard Levitt, a well, uh, a well-known uh, employment lawyer, on all of this, and he said uh, somebody's taking somebody for a ride here. Uh, let's bring in Larry Deany. Larry, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, Scott. I'm very, very well. I'm good to hear from you um, as well. And of course, I've been following the story also. What are your thoughts? I mean, obviously, it's a delicate issue, but but what are your thoughts on what you on, on what we're seeing? Well, it is a delicate issue, very delicate issue, for the reasons uh, that you stated. That you know, it, it involves an individual who happens to be a teacher who is going through a transition, um, and uh, that's got to uh, present all kinds of challenges. Uh, and whatever you say, almost uh, you got to be very careful because it can go sideways very, very easily and be misinterpreted or interpreted as somehow um, uh, dealing with uh, one's opinion about uh, trans trans issues and and people going through that process. And of course, in my mind, it's not. I'm I'm particularly interested, of course, in the story as well because you're right. I spent. Uh, uh, 30 years uh, thereabouts in education, uh, half of which I spent uh, as a principal of secondary school uh, schools. And in fact, I was principal at this school. So I know Oakville Trafalgar very well. I was there for five years. Uh, I know the community very well. I respect the school. It's, a, uh, it's in southeast Oakville, and you're familiar with the area, I would think. Um, a very advantaged um, uh, socioeconomically, um, kids who uh, are interested in furthering their education and take it very, very seriously. We used to get students from all over. In fact, when I was there, we used to have students move into the area so that they could go into that school and be educated by the teachers of that school. 
So I know the milieu quite uh, quite well. Uh, and I do not know this teacher. This teacher was not there when I was there. Um, and all I can say is that, like you, when I first heard about it, and someone sent me some pictures from the internet um, about this individual and this particular situation, I thought it was a parody. I thought, uh, I thought, oh my goodness, th this can't be real. This this is just so outside the realm of uh, of normalcy. So how do you handle this, Larry? How do you handle this? Well. Well, but, but, and that's just it. So how do you handle it? I, I know that the school board has sort of said, uh, and, and they're walking on eggshells as well, and, and they sort of said, you know, we're going to pr protect the rights of this teacher and, and so on. And someone asked me, in fact, uh, in fact, my seatmate, I have season's tickets at the Cat game. My seatmate is a fellow who was vice principal uh, of that school when I was principal there. And he said to me, how would you handle this, Larry? I thought of you when I saw. What would you say? And 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 the only thing I could think of, quite frankly, was to go up to this individual and simply ask, "What are you doing? Please explain to me what is your intent. What are you doing?" And just to see what what kind of logical explanation the individual might have. And and I think I'd want to approach it from that side, from from you know. Uh, Look at the attention that's being drawn to the school. Is it positive? Is it negative? And I've seen some some very very extreme uh, situations occur around that school with all kinds of people marching around the school that that have turned it really into a a zoo. Let me ask uh, you this, Larry. What what would you say to the parents? What would you say to the parents? And we've only got a few seconds left. What would you say to the yeah, parents who yeah, are concerned? Uh, and, and and so what I'd want to say to the parents is give us a chance. We're handling this. This is a complex issue. Uh, we're handling this. There's by no means uh, from my part as a principal of the school uh, support for turning the school into a zoo. Uh, and we're handling it, but there are all kinds of issues, and we're going to have to navigate our, our way through this. And then go to the board and go to the province and, and hope that uh, you could get some assistance in terms of dealing with this uh, in, a, in a sensitive way, but also in a forthright way that, that lessens, that brings down the temperature, that allows us to focus on the education again in what is a good school, and maybe get some help for this individual if indeed there are some some issues of mental health and and uh, and, uh, and so on. So uh, I want to assure the parents that that we're, we're trying to handle this and then do it in as expeditious a way as possible. Unfortunately, the school board chair apparently um, has given license to this. Has said we're supporting this teacher. And, and you can support the teacher, but also support a decent dress code, I would think. Uh, and that's, you know, my bias is showing here as to which side of the equation I would fall uh, on. But, but for sure, it needs to be dealt with because it, it's not helping the cause of education. It's not helping the cause for this school, which is an excellent school. And it's probably in the long run and certainly in the short run, but also in the long run, not helping this particular teacher as well. Larry Danny with us, former mayor city of Hamilton and former principal of Oakville Trafalgar High School, uh, the school that is uh, in question with the teacher that we are talking about. Larry, uh, thanks so much for sharing your views. Much appreciated. We'll chat again. Be well. Thank you. All right. Economists from the Royal Bank of Canada expect the country to enter a recession the first quarter of 2023. Ain't that something to look forward to, folks? 
Uh, quote, cracks are forming in Canada's economy. According to this forecast, uh, housing markets have cooled sharply. Central banks are in the midst of a most aggressive rate hike cycles in history. And while labor markets remain strong, employment is down over the last four months. So says this RBC report. To talk more about all of this, Eric Cam is with us, professor of economics, Toronto Metropolitan University. He's here now. Eric, thank you for your time. Hope you're well. I am. Hope you are as well. Uh, we've certainly been hearing the R word recession through uh, the latter part of this global pandemic. Uh, are we serious about this now? Because at one time they were saying, well, it's not going to happen. And if it does, it's going to be different this time. Well, it depends who they are. If you mean the government, uh, I hope they're getting serious because this is a serious time. If you mean most economists, both professional and academic, we've kind of seen this road coming for a while. I mean, you got to be careful who you listen to, Scott. First, you had the government saying that the economic slowdown was going to be transient, to use a word. Mm. Um, and then you had the Bank of Canada saying they expect it to be moderate to short-lived. And we live in interesting economic times. The problem is, by interesting, I mean that this is the economic equivalent of the darkness and the wind that encircles the world before a huge storm. So in that hmm. sense, if I can ramble, the RBC economists are 100% right. I mean, all you have to do is look at the evidence. The housing market, they finally succeeded. It's cooled really sharply thanks to these interest rate rises. So it is now officially recessed. And soon it's going to be a collapse if nothing happens. And the problem with that, other than the obvious, is that the housing market is the single biggest indicator of economic health. So if we see the housing market collapse, gross domestic product really isn't far behind. And so that's what's at the root of this. These interest rate hikes from the Bank of Canada, it doesn't look like they're going to stop just yet. So that's the bank telling you that we have lost the war against inflation, at least temporarily. Now, is there good news? Well, there's great news. The great news is that I can speak without taking a breath, but the labor market's the last <laughs> domino to fall. And so far it hasn't. But if this continues, eventually consumption is going to start to fall because of the price of borrowing. Then the labor market's going to decrease. And as soon as you have a decrease in the demand for labor, then we're in a deep-seated recession. So I know this was a long-winded answer to your question, but yes, there are no economic signs right now that point to anything else other than a recession. Uh, you talked about uh, the low uh, unemployment rate. Obviously, uh, those numbers have, have uh, the employment rate has dipped a bit. However, still uh, historically low unemployment, still a high demand for housing. How is that going to offset this, or is it? Well, it is if the rates continue to go up. You see, the problem is, is that the rates of interest, and because there's a slew of them, don't just affect the housing market, they affect all markets. And so the more you increase the price of borrowing, you're going to start to decrease all spending across the economy. And consumption is the number one component of gross domestic product. So if you decrease the housing market, then you decrease consumption. So now you have all of the economic predictors heading in the same direction. And Scott, they're only going in one direction. They're going down. Uh, obviously, you've said housing has uh, dropped or leveled off. It's we, the rise has the peak has been slowed, has been stopped, uh, and we're starting to feel the pinch of those higher interest rates. Do we deal with all of this differently now? Is it time to adjust how we're moving forward at this point? 
Whether it is or it isn't, it's not going to happen. The Bank of Canada has set out an agenda for itself. They have said we are going to raise the prime lending rate and all the rates through the system until we see the rate of inflation falling. And so far, the rate of inflation is not falling. So what I think should happen or you think should happen, with all due respect, isn't near as important as the Bank of Canada. And they've been... They've at least been consistent. Rates are going to go up and they're going to continue to go up until they see a fall in this average aggregate price level, which hasn't happened yet, which tells you, by the way, that if this starts to hit the travel industry, hospitality and tourism, then you know that the worst is yet to come, Scott. Uh, Christia Freeland speaking uh, just in the last couple of days over the energy crisis that's happening in Europe and and the need for um, uh, more energy and such and how this is changing the economic outlook moving forward. Is this the Canadian government realizing that it has to re-examine its energy policies? Well, if it isn't, I don't know what the heck it would take. I mean, you're talking about a country that is the third or fourth in the world largest generator of things like natural gas and petroleum. If you read economic textbooks, says that we should be taking advantage of these situations and we should be selling and not buying these commodities. But you know, leave it to our government to drop the football every chance it gets and we're still doing way more importing and not enough exporting. So if this does wake up the government to say we have a comparative advantage in energy and oil, natural gas, let's use that comparative advantage to start becoming more profitable, well then maybe this has a silver lining. But if you're asking me if I would bet on that, well that's why I'm not a betting person because our government has yet to jump on it and it's been decades. Eric Cam with us, Professor Economics, Toronto Metropolitan University, recession on the horizon. Eric, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. Be well. It's an honor. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. We saw another example of uh, the solidarity within the uh, police community and how they come together uh, when in need as uh, the bodies of those two fallen officers from Innisfil headed uh, back to Barrie today from the coroner's office in downtown Toronto. Uh, the route lined with police officers and uh, other EMS workers and such. Uh, saluting and showing uh, signs of support for uh, these uh, fallen officers. Uh, obviously, uh, the last month or so taking a huge toll on uh, any of us that are close to the policing community in the sense that four officers have died in uh, the last month, uh, three of those in the line of duty, one driving to work uh, by an alleged drunken driver. Let's bring in Steve Jordan's professor of psychology, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Steve, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, I am reasonably well, thank you, and great to be with you again. This must be an incredibly challenging time to uh, be a police officer on so many fronts, whether it is, you know, the pandemic and coming out of that and and what we've all had to deal with, and now uh, the loss of these uh, other fellow officers. Any insight into what this means to the policing community, how they handle this? Yeah, I mean, it it is so, so difficult. And it's in part, you know, just a a reminder to every one of them of how dangerous their job is, um, which, you know, they carry so much anxiety. We expect them to be able to manage uh, an anxiety load that none of the rest of us could really manage. It's it's, it's what I call the unreasonable ask we make of them. And, you know, I think especially so with three of these last situations where it seems by all accounts that these were ambushes, uh, which, you know, if you're a police officer and you can't go and have lunch without worrying about somebody shooting you from behind or something like that. I really don't understand how they 
are able to kind of wrap their heads around that and continue to do the job when, you know, they're just going through such a difficult time and, and often getting not enough support from the rest of us. Um, and so that's something, you know, I would kind of like to see the general public show a little bit more um, compassion, understanding, and just respect to, to say, hey, to a cop and say, man, you know, terrible times you guys are going through. I really feel for you. It would be nice for them to know more of us were on their side. Yeah, it seems, unfortunately, we're always looking for someone else to blame. Um, you know, I remember talking to a, uh, just last week on the show, talking to a retired police officer who's been out for nine years now, um, and he brought up a, fa- a valid point. The per- I mean, you got to think of how many people they encounter on any given day while they are doing their job, and you never know whether that person that they meet or you meet, whether it's they're smiling or not, is your friend or your foe, and anything from nothing to this could happen. And you just, how, how do you, how do you gauge that? How do you balance that when you meet the average person on the street? Yeah. And, and, you know, just to give a real sense of what that does in, inside the brain, so to speak, you know, we all think, oh, when you're in one of these stressful situations, like you come on the scene and there's something going on, then yes, of course, we expect the person to feel anxious, um, but hopefully be prepared to deal with that. But when you don't know when that's going to happen, when every routine call could turn into one of these things, then that your brain starts to anticipate that danger. And, you know, literally on the drive to that call, a lot of these officers are probably already feeling what we call anticipatory anxiety. And it's really that randomness that triggers that. When the brain doesn't know when it's going to happen, it assumes it might happen all the time. Um, and, and therefore, they're carrying you know, what, what would be what we call an acute stress, just a stress that happens in an event, becomes a chronic stress that they carry with them all the time. Um, and those chronic stresses just wear people down, you know, especially because they're often, I don't know if the general public knows this, they're often working 12-hour shifts. Yeah. They often don't have a lot of control over those shifts, so there's continually changing. Uh, and so, you know, the basic foundations that help us cope are already challenged, and then they have this high level of, of stress to carry with them throughout their day. And obviously for everyone, including EMS, including police, uh, in a pandemic world, this all seems to be heightened tenfold. Um, and, and you know, you bring up another, a valid point. And I was talking to a friend of mine who's a cop about this, you know, going through all of what you have just said, but then working 12 hour shifts and not only that, but alternating every couple of weeks from night to days to night to days. Like that wipes you out without this stress. Is that? Do you think maybe we should look at that aspect of policing? You know, I do. I've I've talked to both the police and healthcare. Um, groups that I've been interacting with around stress management, and both of them have this characteristic of these random, continually changing shifts, which really yeah. does take the foundation right under, uh, you know, from under our feet in terms of our ability to cope with things. And it seems like the quickest easy fix to get that uh, a little more stable, but it's so ingrained in the culture of these um, services that they just, they don't even think of it as something that that's open to change. Uh, but sometimes some of those basics can make a big, big difference. Uh, you know, the other part that's linked to that too is for many of us, we get a major source of our sort of stress relief from our family. 
Uh, but so often because of the continual shift work, they can't have a regular interaction yeah. with their family. They never know when, you know, mom or dad are going to be there or not. Um, and plus the world of their work is so different from the world of their family that it's often very difficult for them to, you know, bring the work home and talk to it with, you know, talk to their spouse about it, et cetera. Um, and so, yeah, they're just hit on every side and we all just ex expect them to be able to, you know, do that and perform, you know, amazingly for us and keep us all safe without a lot of empathy coming from us about what we're actually asking of them. And, you know, you talk about the sleep patterns. And as you mentioned, exactly the same for nurses, for healthcare. I mean, they're they're working all hours and, and, and obviously rotating shifts as well. Um, is there something, is there a key there that, and again, I mean, you know, I had to do morning shifts, overnight shifts, I, you know, I know how taxing that can be on the body. Then you add this stress. Is this really something that we could be looking at that could help the burnout in these industries? I mean, I think it's for, for me, it would be number one, you know, but often people look at these complex support programs or whatever, like let these people's bodies just be in a stable state. There's their, their body and their mind. And we all feel this when we travel and we have a sense of jet lag, um, mm. you know, how much that can throw us off our game and make things really difficult for us. These people are being pushed into a life of continual jet lag, and then they're put into these ridiculously stressful situations. So yeah, you know, that's seems like number one for me is let's give them a stable existence, a stable life where their brain can kind of anticipate, you know, when they go to bed, when they wake up, etc. That would be a huge benefit in terms of helping them just have a, a life of, of mental health. How do they separate work from, uh, uh, from life? Uh, how do they relax? How can they, uh, without the obvious drugs, alcohol, whatever, and bad things you should be yeah. doing? What, how, what, how do you healthily, in a healthy way, handle this? Yeah, I mean, often they turn to each other because they are, you know, that's what we see when we see this community um, that we think of the blue line or, or whatnot. You know, it's really for them. They, I think many of them feel like if you're not a cop, you don't get it. Um, and in fact, that's one of the challenges I have when I when I mm. teach and interact with them is, you know, I have to let them know I get it. Um, that's the only way. So for many of them, the only people that get it are themselves, each other. Uh, and so often, you know, we have the stereotype of police going to a pub or something like that afterwards. Um, but, you know, sometimes that doesn't lead to healthiest outcomes as well. And so, you know, part of what I do in, in one of the courses that I offer to the MCIT, there, there are nurses and the officers that go out as parents pairs. Um, I try in the third hour of my course to invite their family to come and join online. Well, I ask them to join for the whole thing. Because when I'm explaining to the officers, these are the stresses that you're dealing with every day. And this is why your job is so hard. I really like the family to understand that too. And I like them to have what I call a common vocabulary. So when that officer comes home, they know how to talk through some of that mm -hmm. stuff. And I, and I think right now that isn't there. And, you know, so when they come home, they, a lot of them have walls um, and, and they aren't getting that emotional support they really need because it's a difficult situation to navigate. Steve Jordan's with us, professor of psychology, University of Toronto, talking about the stress of being a police officer or any EMS worker for that uh, matter. And you know what? Maybe a good time to go up to a cop, a fireman person, a EMS worker, and thank them for the great work they do, including our health care. Uh, Steve, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Thank you. 
Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. January 6th committee, we know this has been going on for a while. Um, but boy, it certainly seemed to come to a head yesterday, uh, as we saw quite the uh, presentation followed by the committee voting to subpoena Donald Trump. To talk more about all of this, Reggie Cicchini with us, our Washington correspondent for Global News. He's here now. Reggie, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Um, I'm watching this. I'm watching this last night, and the the tidbits here and there, uh, whether it's live yesterday afternoon or on the news last night, it was quite the presentation. Do you get the feeling this is coming to a turning point? Is this coming to a head? Well, I mean, I think it's getting harder and harder for members of the Republican Party, up to and including the former president, to continue on with the rhetoric um, that really sparked what took place on January 6th. That hearing that took place yesterday played uh, tape that really pushed back on some of the GOP talking points, uh, including that, you know, Speaker Nancy Pelosi was getting in the way of, uh, of National Guardsmen coming in to try and assist with the situation when there was clear tape shown yesterday of Nancy Pelosi on the phone with the former governor of Virginia trying to figure out how they could get the White House to put the National Guard uh, in place. So I think it kind of worked to rebuff some of those comments that Republicans have been making. But at the end of the day, uh, given the fact that this is a committee that really has been trying to resonate with Democrats, very few Republicans are paying attention. It was a big deal. Is it going to make any difference going forward? You know, harder and harder to see that happening. Uh, you mentioned, uh, and we even saw this in the footage, Pence and Pelosi trying to work to get this voting process completed, to get it done, uh, uniting in some in some way. Are, are the Democrats and Republicans united on any of this from what we've seen? Well, again, uh, you know, back what happened in 2020 and then with the attack on January 6, 2021, there was a kind of cordial working uh, relationship between both parties to, uh, you know, deal with accountability and to ensure that uh, that the voting uh, procedures and the certification took place. There was even negative pushback towards former President Trump from within the Republican Party. The problem is, Scott, that only lasted a couple of weeks, if not more than a couple of days before Republicans went and fell back in line uh, with the former president. And here we are now. Uh, you know, heading to the 2022 midterms, and we still have a significant number of Republican candidates that are uh, vying for places in some form of elected government that are election deniers from 2020. So, you know, it still rings true. Trumpism still remains a heavy presence heading into these midterms. And, you know, one could argue that both parties are almost further apart on most things than they have been over the last couple of years. Uh, the evidence they were also showing yesterday uh, was trying to, uh, trying to prove that Donald Trump was not going to accept the loss long before the election was even held, and he was planning for exactly what happened uh, if, in, if, in fact, he was not re- uh, reelected. Uh, does that weigh in on any of this, the fact that he sort of had a premeditated plan, uh, win or lose? I think it, it makes for sound bites for Democrats, especially when you have someone like Steve Bannon several days, I believe it was October 31st, 2020, more than a week before the election, saying that Donald Trump is going to say that he didn't win. Uh, even if he hasn't won, he's still going to say that he did win. So, I mean, you know, there, there was very clearly a, a pretext here or a conversation that took place 
uh, to get an effort rolling here within the Trump orbit. Uh, and I think that is why we saw that push from the committee yesterday to put a subpoena on the table for the former president to say, look, we've had nine hearings now. We've laid the evidence out there. We think Donald Trump is a central figure in what took place on January 6, 2021. Uh, and, and here is his now opportunity to come and testify. And as we saw from the release that the former president put out this morning, if he were to accept, if he were to testify, we know exactly what he would say, the same rhetoric that ultimately sparked January 6th. So the vote to subpoena has gone through. What does this mean? Will he? Uh, how, how, what happens now? We get, I mean, you know, will he or won't he? We don't know. He said he was going to respond to it this morning. He didn't. He simply put out 14 pages um, of, of nonsense and, and election you know, rhetoric that, that amounts to a lie, including a couple of crowd size photos of what was happening on January 6th and didn't say yes or no. The issue here is that time is not on Democrats' side. This committee is going to run out of time when the new Congress is sworn in in January. And if Republicans take control, Scott, they are likely going to disband the January 6th select committee and the work will come to an end. So Donald Trump can attempt to try and run out the clock here. If Democrats pull off some kind of victory and this investigation goes forward, that could be a different story. Also worth pointing out, there is a parallel Department of Justice investigation into several factors around the 2020 election and January 6th. That will not be affected by any change in Congress. Any potential push for testimony could still fall at the hands of the DOJ. Is Donald Trump still the Republican Party's hottest commodity? Uh, possibly. There are Republicans who refuse to back away from him. There were Republicans on the 2022 uh, midterm uh, ballot that are still uh, you know, reeling in what Donald Trump says happened in 2020, and they are not backing away. What happens after the midterms? We'll have to see. You know, He didn't have a lot of luck with some people. He had luck with other people in trying to get them on the ballot. Uh, you know, After 2022, heading into 2024, Republicans will either look for a new shining star or they will fall backwards and hope that people fall in line with them. Reggie Giacchini with his Washington correspondent for Global News. Make sure you're watching tonight for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. Happy Friday. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We're seeing a slow and progressive rise in the number of COVID cases. Uh, the percentage of tests that are positive is going up this week. The number of people in hospital and in our intensive care units is also going up in Ontario. I'm hoping for the highest level of uptake simply uh, to protect Ontarians because the vaccine is normally quite effective at reducing your risk of hospitalization uh, and, and we really need it this year of all years. There you have it. Get your vaccination. Get your booster. Uh, Daddy's loaded. I'm loaded for bear, man. Uh, I'm not a boomer, so I didn't. I didn't qualify for the uh, Pfizer initially. I uh, I got the AZ, the AstraZeneca. Yeah, like the UK. And then uh, two shots of Pfizer, and then I, now I got a Moderna. I got the uh, the new Moderna in me. I've covered all the bases, baby. I'm building up that extra bit of uh, resistance. So, you know, I'm feeling pretty positive about all of this. Even though cases are on the rise, I keep going back to it's a much milder variant and most of us are vaccinated. However, I do know of a couple of people who are still sick with this, who uh, are all vaccinated, perhaps a bit older than me. Uh, well, they are. And, uh, and, and fully vaccinated and have been dealing with this for like a week. And normally we hear, you know, you're in and out of it in a couple of days. So it is something to be concerned about. It is important that you get your vaccines updated and such. Uh, are we going back to where we are? 
My uneducated opinion is no. But let's bring in someone who's smarter than me. Thomas Tencake, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health, Toronto Metropolitan University. He is with us now. Thomas, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, yes, thanks, Scott. Thanks very much for having me. So, uh, as I mentioned, you know, um, I feel pretty positive because I'm fully vaccinated, but I know of people that are and still got sick, uh, one of which I can think of is still out after almost uh, a week. So how do we keep this all in perspective? How do we make sure we don't end up where we were? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. And, uh, you know, I think where, where we're at now is that I think overall we're in a better place than we, we have been in the last couple of years because overall i think the level of immunity within the community is 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 at a good level uh, and that's because of the the vac- vaccination so so we, we have to say you know we're at a good place from that perspective whereas when we look at the data we we can see that you know the last two years this is the, the at this time we've started to uh, ramp up to to our january peak and so so i think that's why uh, Dr. Moore is sort of starting to uh, indicate. Well, let's let's take it a little bit more seriously because we are seeing the numbers uh, start to creep up. And and you know, and, and whereas you know, when I look at the data from say this year versus last year, the numbers that we have now are a lot higher already than what we had last year. And last and last year led into the most significant uh, peak that we had. So so you know, I wouldn't want to sort of say that that's you know, I wouldn't want to scare people to say, "Well, we're in for a, a you know a really big peak or an even bigger peak this year," because I would like to think that the level of uh, immunity that we have within within the members of the public is is a lot lot better, and and give, given also the type of variant that's that's uh, circulating as well. But but I think it's just sort of raising that uh, ish the the point that yeah we still have to be uh, you know cautious and and particularly. Uh, say el- elderly people, we're seeing that people in the over 60s and uh, particularly over 80s are the you know most uh, most vulnerable still, and so so definitely we have to think about it in terms of of risk factors. Uh, obviously, Dr. Moore yesterday stressing to get your vaccination updated, but also pointed out because many are 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 asking about masking again. And I've even seen his words being interpreted a couple of different times. I've watched it a couple of times. Basically, and correct me if I'm wrong, what he said is if you're in a vulnerable situation or a vulnerable person or going into a vulnerable situation, then you should obviously consider wearing a mask, but stop short of making uh, masks mandate or such, or for those that aren't into uh, a vulnerable situation. Do you want to comment on that? Yeah. Yeah, I think when, when you're you know, like consistently through the, the pandemic, that we have to think of what, what are the risk factors and and who's most at risk. And so so as an individual, the, the key risk factors are, are our age, so you know, elderly people, as well as people with pre-existing conditions and who might be immunocompromised. So, so at a individual level there's those those key factors that make you more at risk but then when you're out in the community the the risk factors that make you more at risk are crowded indoor areas and on transit and and those sorts of settings and so so you really have to say well if if it's really up to me as an individual now to try and manage my own risk how do i do that and so it's saying well okay based on my own risk factors do I do I need to wear a mask, uh, you know, more more when I'm out, and when I'm out, do, should I be wearing them in wear a mask in 
in those higher risk settings. And so, so I think that's the way way to think about it. And like personally, I, you know, I, I'm sort of wearing a mask when I'm on transit and in, in very crowded situations, but I, I'm not in, in other situations. So, uh, but if I was immunocompromised or had a pre-existing condition or I, I was, was elderly, I think I'd be wearing a mask more often. Uh, and talk about the flu and how it is on an increase. The one advantage of wearing masks all during the glo- uh, global pandemic was it, ter- it kept the flu down. Now we're seeing rising numbers in the flu. How can that complicate this fall? Yeah, well, well, definitely it's 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 a complicating because because of the uh, you know in a lot of ways the the sort of symptoms and what people might experience might be quite similar. So you might know whether or not it's the flu or if it's if it's COVID, yeah. and and the way the way you uh, become infected is is the same sort of process. And so so I think you know what what that sort of really means is that like the from from a perspective of the impact on the healthcare system. Uh, uh, Influenza has a has a big impact in regard to hospitalizations as well, and so so it's really that aspect of impact on the healthcare system of of both COVID and and influenza both going up at the same time, uh, and so so I think that's what they're worried about. Thomas Tenkate with us, professor, School of Occupational and Public Health, Toronto Metropolitan University. Tom, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Yeah, you too. Thanks very much, Scott. John Iveson is with us from the National Post. His latest, Trudeau has a high bar to meet to justify the use of the Emergencies Act. John Iveson, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi, Scott. So your thoughts, uh, you know, obviously uh, three weeks into this, there may be a great debate as to whether it was needed or not. Uh, My question is, uh, will we find out why nobody really did anything for the first week of this and kind of kept passing the buck. It seems that opportunities were missed in those first few days to really get a handle on this protest. Will that come out at all? So, yes, I think some of that will come out. Uh, the, uh, the the witness list is pretty extensive. It includes the former police chief, Peter Slowly. It includes the Ottawa Police Service. It includes the OPP. You're going to get a lot of uh, in-depth policing uh, testimony. But I think the focus of this thing really is, is the federal government. And what the federal government did was, was it justified in declaring the Emergencies Act. That's what the focus of the whole inquiry is about, rather than whether the police should have acted sooner. I mean, I think that will come out, but it's not the, the main thrust of what the commissioner is trying to find out. If you look at it from that perspective, uh, John, um is it not already quite cut and dry and it doesn't appear at this time that they had met that threshold? Isn't that, won't that portion of this be quite cut and dry? Well, I think that that's, for most of us who followed this thing, who watched it unfold, that it is, it does appear pretty cut and dry unless something dramatic comes out of this. I mean, the, uh, the, Government of Canada's counsel, Robert McKinnon, stood up and said that there was a reasonable basis for declaring a public order emergency. Later on, a Lakehead professor, a law, law professor called Ryan Alford said in his opening statement, somehow he got standing and he, he said, the number of this inquiry is that the government has to prove it met the legal standard for using the emergency provision of last resort. He said, unfortunately, a reasonable basis is not a legal, let alone a constitutional basis. And so I think that... Um, what we're really looking for on that front is the fact that the um, 
the government debated in cabinet what to do here, and presumably uh, some of that will come out because those cabinet confidences have been waived. Normally, in, a, in an inquiry, a public inquiry, and we've had I think 150 of them in the lifespan of Canada. Only four of them had cabinet confidences waived, and this is one of them. So we will get, or at least the judge will get a sense of what was said inside cabinet. He will also get a sense of any intelligence advice that was passed to the government. Now, ministers leaned pretty heavily on that and suggested that there was an organised, uh, that rally organisers were were um, a danger to national security. The public safety minister said that the protests were coordinated by a small organised group driven by an ideology to overthrow the government through whatever means. I mean, it made they made it sound at the time like there was a serious conspiracy here and that the government was in danger and national security was in danger, which is the reason you call an uh, declare uh, emergencies uh, legislation. Uh, obviously, point, sorry, go at this point we haven't seen any of that. And I think we've had to take it on faith that there was something there that they knew more than we did, perhaps. Now, I think at the end of this uh, inquiry, unless there is something that's pretty stark, uh, it seems to me, at least, that there was that the bar has not been met. The fact that this movement, we've heard nothing more of it. Uh, we heard that when things were, uh, were were protests, when there were protests in Ottawa and it was hell there, that this was linked to all kinds of other organizations. Why have we not heard from any of those organizations? Has this all kind of petered out? And how does well, that affect this? My reading of it to this point is that, that um, we had protests in, in Alberta we had protests at the uh, the Ambassador Bridge. There were protests in Manitoba, too, even in BC. And this was affecting cross-border trade. The Americans were getting antsy, and they essentially said, you've got to do something. And I think the government panicked. I mean, I think that uh, when they saw the, there was an arrest with a cache of arms at Coots, Alberta, this gave them the pretext to invoke the Emergencies Act. And, you know, they... they the counsel for the protesters stood up yesterday. He said, you are not going to see, um, the, the inquiry is not going to hear that protesters were engaged in sabotage or clandestine acts, that they were being manipulated by a foreign influence, that they used serious violence against people or property, or that they were intent on destroying or overthrowing the government of Canada. Now, there may have been individuals, but, but that's not what uh, Marco Mendocino led us to believe. I mean, it seems to me and I use these words and it upset a lot of the protesters, but that's too bad. I said it was a rowdy group of unsophisticated troublemakers. Mm. And, you know, anybody who was here could tell you they were rowdy and they were troublemakers. But they, it was not a sophisticated uh, attempt at insurrection, which is what I think the government was trying to lead us to, into thinking. And unless there is something that we don't know about that, the, uh, that the, is, is told to the commissioner as part of this inquiry, then... I don't think it's going to come out well on the government. Do you think the government is fear-mongering to cover up the inaction at the early stages and obviously letting it get to where it got to that um, it, it felt it had no option but to call the Emergencies Act? Well, it, it may be, but I mean, it, it, I think most of the blame, certainly in Ottawa at that time, was not being laid at the floor of the, or at the door of the federal government. It was being laid at the door of uh, the Ottawa Police Service. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly local residents lost confidence in their police service. And, and you know, I think that um, 
that that was it, the federal government was under pressure, but it was not um, bearing the brunt of the pressure. I think that the, uh, the I mean, when you look at the order in council that was used to to declare the to implement the Emergencies Act, it talked a lot about uh, distribution networks and trade and foreign partners. It barely mentioned uh, national security. Last question, John. Where do you think we'll be six weeks from now? Well, it was interesting that one of the police services that was uh, it was called upon to... So every, yesterday, everybody came out and gave the, uh, basically a, a synopsis or a summary of what they were going to say in the course of this investigation or this inquiry. And the OPP representative came out and said essentially that, you know, this... this legislation uh, there was sufficient legal authority without this legislation Mm -hmm. and so you didn't really need the Emergencies Act and I think that that is essentially where we're going to go despite the fact that some of the the people are going to try and uh, muddy the waters for their own ends. The the Ottawa Police Service for example said we needed this because it was unprecedented and needed an unprecedented response not so says the OPP and I think that's where the consensus is going to be John Iveson with us, his latest in the National Post. Trudeau has a high bar to meet to justify use of the Emergencies Act. John, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Yep, thank you. All the best. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. And you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's with us now. Scott, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, it's Friday. Who couldn't be doing well? I know, I hear you. Um, so the Emergency Act inquiry uh, has begun. Uh, we're certainly hearing about how difficult it was for residents of Ottawa. And, you know, I mean, obviously, if you're there, you know, three weeks of a protest, blazing uh, horns and, and all the rest, um, you can certainly understand that. But the big question is, and is about, is, is was the threshold met that this actually was a national security threat? OPP lawyer already said that uh, it wasn't needed, that uh, the Alberta and the uh, Ambassador Bridge borders were already open, and this wasn't necessarily a case of laws needed. It was a failure of leadership. Those are my words. Um, and, and that once the proper plan and the police were there, it was cleared out quite quickly. Uh, your thoughts on all of this? Do you think the natural, uh, the national threat to security, do you think that bar has been met? And that's up to the federal government to prove that. It's a pretty high bar. Well, I mean, the early parts of this sounded like it was basically a problem in Ottawa, which, I mean, we know it was in Ottawa, but this was, this was a municipal problem about horn honking. And I'm thinking to myself as I was reading this, wait, so a number of days of people honking horns, I understand that would be really annoying. I mean, really sure. annoying. Yeah. We're expecting like 10 years of construction along King Street for the LRT, which will be loud <laughs> and dusty. <laughs> Should that bring the Emergency Act into play because those people are going to be greatly disturbed by all those years of construction noise? I mean, look, it's, I know I'm being facetious here. It's, there, we, we've still got lots to hear in this. And, and uh, right now, everything we've heard, and it's only one day, but everything we've heard to me has been, I don't really care. It's what we've already known. We yeah, knew yeah. For, we've known for weeks now that, According to all the police services, they didn't ask for this, even though the government said they did. We've known that there was honking horns. We know, and I don't, you know, I'm sort of making fun, but I I understand if you're in Ottawa, this would have been incredibly annoying. I get it. The really, to me, the two people that uh, 
that are going to be the, I don't know, do I say the only two? Maybe not the only two, but uh, Tamara Lich, who we want to hear from for sure, but also the prime minister, because assuming, and I don't know, I'm assuming they're under oath, the people who are yep. there. I didn't yes, look sir. and see if they're sworn in, I'm assuming. Um, you know, there are going to be some questions that if, uh, on my show last night, I was talking to Stephen LeDrew, who's a former president of the Liberal Party, and one of the comments we both agreed on is, politicians are magnificent at running out the clock. You ask them a tough question, they'll give you a four-minute answer that yeah. talks about how the sky is blue and the sea is green and on and on and on and, and all this stuff, but they never actually get to the answer. What I'm truly hoping is when the key people get on the stand here, on both sides, that the justice who is overseeing this doesn't take that crap. And when a politician, whether it's the prime minister or anyone else, starts giving one of these flowery, endless, non-answer answers that he says, cutting you off right there, with all due respect, answer the bloody question. Yeah. No dancing, no obfuscating, no, no House of Commons ask the question about something and they answer something entirely different. That is my only hope for this, that under oath with a justice in charge that all of these people on every side who just make a career of dancing around stuff and never giving mm. us a straight answer are forced to. That's what I want to see. Um, you know, it's interesting because, uh, uh, you know, this seems to be a debate about what those people went through and what we needed to do to get rid of them. And that's really not the issue here. The issue is the, na the Emergency Act was sure. was implemented, and it has to be proven that a, there was a national security threat in order for that to do, or in order, for, in order to implement that. So in my opinion, this is not a case of we needed a new law, we needed new authority, we needed new power, because all the police departments have said we had all of that. What this was was a failure of leadership, whether that's with the prime minister, whether that's with the mayor, whether that's with the police chief, and ultimately the police chief resigned, so that's where it's going to fall. He's he certainly become, uh, um, you know, the scapegoat here, and, and rightly so. But at the end of the day, this is failure of leadership rather than the right law wasn't in place to me. You and I, let's bring it to Hamilton for a second. You and I talked several weeks or maybe a month or so ago when city council passed that new omnibus nuisance party bylaw. Oh yeah. And we both pointed out that you had the laws to look after the issue. If you had, they were already all the bylaws and, and provincial offenses and everything else, they all existed already. You could have charged people with being drunk in public. You could have charged people with blocking roads. You could have charged people with vandalism and all that kind of stuff. I don't know that we needed another law to put in place. Just use the laws we have. Well, that sounds like what this is really going to be about is did we have the laws that were needed or was this such a, a, a unique thing that went beyond any laws we possibly could have imagined we would need that hmm. only the Emergency Act was going to be able to cover that? And look, I... I I think that is going to be an exceptionally high bar to reach. And I think it should be an exceptionally high bar to reach in this one. I think the it, it is a terrifying prospect if at the end of this, and look, nobody, Scott, is going to agree on the result no matter what the inquiry report comes out at. If you support the government, you're going to believe them no matter what. If you don't, you're not going to believe them. But at the end of this, if the report comes out that says, yeah, you know what? It was loud and it was annoying and it stopped traffic for a while. And therefore, the Emergency <laughs> Act was warranted. 
that's a frightening place to be that that is now the bar for these kind of involvements of militia and police and everything else. I'm hoping the standard is set far higher. And we're wondering why people are questioning institutions. We're questioning institutions because of a lack of leadership. Uh, I mean, come on. All right, I'll leave it with you. Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news, host of the Scott Radley Show, and you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. You have a great one as well. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to the two Wills and Diana and Dave in the newsroom. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Sam, when you expand outside the boundaries, they do not make any new expressways or highways. This is the real problem. Um, and, and everybody's not seeing that. You know, they want to expand out into the countryside. Yeah, yeah, great. But they're, they're not building any new highways or expressways to accommodate all that new growth. That's why we've got so much brown space within the city that they can fill in, especially with the LRT. There's going to be a lot of high-rises on that line. Just a point I wanted to make because no, everybody I talk to, nobody's understanding you need to build expressways and highways for this new expansion. And you see how bad it is around here. The Red Hill and the Link, they're jammed bumper to bumper. 